So I want to invite you now, if you will, to join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to a church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. And I want to pick up in chapter 2 where we left off last week. We spent the last three weeks in chapter 1 as Paul gives this letter that encourages and admonishes these people. And as you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to put your finger there in that spot, kind of mark it, if you will, and then flip back in your Bible, not very far, to Acts chapter 17. So you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, I want to put one into your hands, and you'll be able to find by, by table of contents. Just raise your hand. One of these ushers will hand you a Bible. Hold it there. This is for us a tangible way in which we, we resist the temptation to just kind of like sit back and be entertained by someone on a stage with a Bible. But instead, we really believe this shapes us. We open the Bible, and it begins to shape our motives. It begins to teach us how to think. And even when we butt up against what the Bible says, we, we actually begin to sit under. We, we, we begin to assume that we're wrong, that the Bible has something to teach us and shape us. And so I want to do that. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll read verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 8. But before we do that, we're going to mark your spot there and turn to Acts chapter 17. And I want to begin reading in Acts chapter 17 the story of the church in Thessalonica. So beginning in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, if you'll remember, about three years ago, we walked through this book talking about the beginnings of the church. Luke wrote his gospel, that is the good news of who Jesus is, and then he followed up with the book of Acts. And it was a two-part series. Here's who Jesus is, here's what he's come to accomplish, and here now in the book of Acts, literally the Acts of the Apostles is the mission of Jesus accomplished and passed on and given to the hands of the Apostles. And so you see in the book of Acts a movement that begins in Jerusalem, scatters throughout the world, and ends all the way to Rome, the center of, at this particular time, the world. And along the way, churches are planted, the gospel is shared, and beautiful things happen. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 17, this hitting the Thessalonians. Chapter 6 is the story of Philippians. Remember, remember there was a girl who 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 had a demon, and people were benefiting from her, and Paul came and cast out the demon, and then it started a riot. So they move on to the next place in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, same as before. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, don't miss that, people from Thessalonica, the people, this is where this letter that we're reading is gone. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And beginning in verse 1, Paul's letter to these people. These people were part of a church that was planted in the middle of a riot. Verse 1, Thessalonians, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. This is God's word. May it become more than ink on a page. May it become the words of God to the people of God. I want you to see in this particular set of verses, particularly verse 1 through 6 of chapter 2, the anatomy of a biblical leader. You saw in Acts chapter 17, the beginnings of this church. And it came out of much conflict, right? That's a nice way of saying that. They tried to kill us. And so when he says something, you know, like, you know, uh, we had boldness even in the midst of much conflict. You see where they're coming from. This is, these people came in, shared the gospel, and as is uh, the way that the gospel works, it starts to mess with our previous allegiances. 
Did you catch that? It started a riot. And they said, they're after Caesar. They're after the Roman government. They're trying to destroy Rome. Why? Because they're saying that there is a real king, and it's not Caesar. And the gospel comes, as we saw last few, the last few weeks, in a variety of different ways. It comes in power, right? That's a powerful thing. The gospel ought to disturb you. Right? If your loyalty, like the, like the Thessalonians, is to, is to Rome, if your loyalty is to Caesar, when someone comes along and says, no, 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 the good news is not of the victory of Rome, the good news is the victory of Christ, that messes with your allegiance. When you're all full of patriotism and nationalism and you love your people and your team that look, talk, and act like you, and someone comes along and says that's an idol that ought to be cast at the feet of Jesus, who's the new and coming king, bringing a new and powerful kingdom, it messes with you, doesn't it? And that thing you hold to so tightly, Jesus comes in power and begins to pry your hands loose of it. But our culture says this, you feel it prying against. But I really want this thing you feel prying against. And the gospel came in power and started to, as we saw in chapter 1 here, it, it stirred up conviction, the power of the Holy Spirit was on them, and then they started imitating Jesus, and then they started asking other people to imitate Jesus, and they started throwing off their idols and having allegiance to Jesus, and they started living in such a way that Jesus was about to come, and they're waiting patiently for him. Such that in verse 1, Paul comes along, and he says, I came to you, and it was not in vain. So there was something going on here, right? There, there's, there's a sense in which, like, Paul's leadership was under attack. And for the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see him kind of as if he's, like, walking through a list, responding to some things that were likely happening once he left. Remember, once he planted the church, once he started that, what happened? A riot started, and he's like, we got to get out of here. They sneak out, and then they wait, and then when Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you'll see the very first verse, chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, that is another translation of Silas and Timothy, writing to these people that, that they had just planted the church among, right? And, and they had to leave and get out. And so as a result, some people were starting some rumors. Some people were accusing Paul of something. Because after all, if you want to destroy a movement, you destroy the leader. And they started making accusations. And they started saying, look, look, Paul had false motives. He had ulterior motives. He wanted to harm you. And so in chapter 2, we see a powerful thing. Paul starts to give a defense for his leadership. And as Paul gives a defense for his leadership... I believe he helps prepare us to build and defend such leaders by giving us a biblical picture of healthy leadership grounded in our theological convictions. Don't miss this. We as a church are unashamedly devoted to leadership development, a typical kind of leader. And Paul, for the first eight verses and beyond, defends what makes him a worthy and trustworthy leader. And I believe when he does so, he gets at the heart of something that's a big deal for us. What does it mean to be a Jesus-loving, disciple-making person with influence who leads? And Paul, in this chapter, gives a defense to his accusers. He gives a defense. But through that defense, I think he helps to prepare us for the same types of accusations. The same types of things that, that turned on Paul. I, I believe, I, maybe it's not your children or our grandchildren, but at some point, this will happen to us. Our, our validity in the culture will, will dissipate, and it will no longer be cool or acceptable to be a Christian, and you will lean on something, and I believe Paul here sets the example for us that when we need to defend what it is that we believe and why we believe it and why it's worth believing, he gives us a pretty picture here, a pretty clear picture. And in defending his leadership, he gives us a picture of biblical leadership. 
And then here it is for us to actually aspire to this kind of leadership. Here's what I think. I, I, I want to I I push on this as much as uh, I can. I believe the church ought to be the nexus for leadership. That is, it ought to be the source, the central institution, the central location for leaders being developed. I don't think the best leaders should come out of college. I don't think the best leaders should come out of graduate schools. I don't think, I don't think any number of degrees makes you a qualified leader. I don't think the best leaders come out of any particular sector, whether it's financial, civilian, military. I don't think any of those things are the central, the central location for, for sending and creating leaders. I think the church is. And you'll see some of the powerful things going on here. And the reason why that is, is because these leaders that come out of the life of the church come because of their theological convictions. And he makes a point. I think we can see at least five different things. How you live your life is in direct relationship to your view of God. And the things that he starts to lay out, I don't know if you caught that, that make him like, look, don't, don't invalidate what happened. He lays out at least five different views of God that validate his own traits as a leader. How you live your life is in direct relationship to your view of God. And so as a result then, if God gives you influence as a leader of some, in some way or form or other, how you influence others is in direct relationship to your view of God. What you believe at the very core, your real convictions are what shape your character. What you really believe, the choices that you make as a result of what you really believe, like you really trust in, that's the thing that shapes who you are. And that's the thing that you will shape others with. Because in the end, all of us live lives that reflect our view of God. All of us do. What you really believe is what makes you who you are. Your foundational view of reality is what shapes your character and it shapes every decision you make. You may not know it, but if you look at a person closely enough, you can see it. You can see what they love. You can see what they worship. It's visible in everything they do. And the gospel, this finished work, the confidence that we have in what God has done for us in Jesus ought to create the greatest servant leaders imaginable. And we see all the ingredients here. Now, the converse is not true, and I want to warn you against that. That is that just because someone is an influential and helpful or, or powerful leader in the world does not mean that they have any merit in the people of God. You've seen this? I remember uh, serving as a pastor of an established church, and I came to realize that basically all the leaders in the church had been selected because they were successful outside of the church, right? In whatever industry they were in, they had influence, and they were, they were wrecking shop in some sector of the economy or something, and they were highly looked up to in, in this particular area, and the people were like, well, they're good at that. They might as well, they might as well have some influence in the church. And I want to encourage you, that is not work. That doesn't work both ways. In fact, I want to burst your bubble that that actually might be harmful. I mean, think about it. You look at a person who is influential in the world, and they've gotten there by greed. What right do they have, right? They've gotten there by hoarding. What right do they have to have any input in an institution marked by radical generosity? Right? You watch a person who's, who's maybe gotten where they are because they've stepped on a lot of people. They've, they've compromised morally. What right do they have to have an opinion in a group of people marked by servant leadership? 
people with a radical loyalty to a new king. A king that doesn't send his people out for his political causes. A king that runs out in front of his people and dies in their place. That ought to create a radical kind of leader and influencer, right? And I know what you'll say. You'll say, well, well, I'm not a leader. No one looks up to me. I disagree. God has given you influence. God has given you influence. At the very least, you have influence over your own life. At the very least, you have influence over your own self. God has entrusted all sorts of things to you. We would at least categorize them in at least these three, if not more, different kinds of categories. Your time, your treasure, and your talent. God gave you time. You have influence over it. You could do something with it or not. You have a treasure. There's something. With, uh, the fact that none of you are naked here and look like you're starving, it means somebody's taking care of you. You, it's, you, paid for, you paid for those clothes and food somehow. You have a treasure. There's something you can use. And you have a talent. That is, God has gifted you. God has placed you. God has given you a sense of, a sense of stewardship over something. And those things are the things that we use to honor what we really love. And if you watch a person's time, their schedule, you watch their talents where they put their best effort, and you watch their treasure where they actually spend their money, you'll see what they really worship. Make no mistake about it. You can lie to anyone you want, but if you look at somebody's, if you look at their calendar, you look at their, uh, you, you, like you look at their contact list, okay? You, you look at like what, what they get excited about. You look at, at, the, at, at their own schedule. You will see what they really value in painfully true detail. I mean, this, this is powerful. This means that the church ought to be the nexus for leadership. We ought to be sending out Christ-like servant leaders who change and shock the world. But it doesn't necessarily go the other way. That's important because this messes up dating, right? You see this kind of, well, if it works out there, it must work in here. I'm going to push on this. This is what messes up dating, right? Stop looking for something that won't work. In the same way that you wouldn't, you wouldn't use a person who knows nothing about generosity, right? If the gospel hasn't radically changed their view of generosity and service, you wouldn't expect their greedy, hoarding tendencies to help them serve Jesus in any radically self, selfless way, right? And the same thing, don't, don't expect to take a cultural model of dating and marriage and then come out with a Christ-exalting, humble relationship, right? Stop being shocked. Stop being shocked. When you are shopping for that spouse using worldly standards, stop being shocked when they don't measure up to Christ. Stop, oh, I didn't know they were selfless. Or, excuse, I didn't know they were selfish. Like, if you are measuring it by worldly standards, you will get worldly results. You see what I mean? Like, but on the other hand, if you, you, you love and cherish a person who's a servant, you cultivate selflessness and sacrificial giving and generosity, that, that'll, blow up, that, that'll blow up the cultural view of marriage, and it'll last the test of time, won't it? But it doesn't go both ways. You can't import one into the other. But I think I can make a case here that you should import the, the values that the gospel creates in us and send us into the world. This is a beautiful thing. So I want to walk through these five traits as quickly as I can. The first one is, there's a trait of a leader, it's determination. And I want to show you that this, each of these traits, at least five, there's probably more, at least five of these traits that we find in Paul defending his leadership are grounded in a theological premise. These kinds of, the way that these kinds of traits show up in him are grounded in a belief about God and a belief about the world as a result. So he says, beginning, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Don't miss this. 
This guy had a radical sense of determination. A radical sense of determination. And that sense of determination was rooted in a confident and bold view of what God had done for him. Who God was and what he was doing in the world. Catch it. You know that our coming to you was not in vain. We read that, right? We read Acts 17. Did you hear what happened? They went and they were so popular that they were run out of town. Right? What they said was so awesome that they wanted to kill them. Right? It was so successful that a mob started to kick them out of the city. And yet, what does he say? Did you catch that? That word there, not in vain, means it wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't useless. In fact, it was fruitful. Don't miss that. Most of the time, what people value and consider to be worthy of their time are things that are really measured by the approval of other people. And if you ask people to tell you what they think is worthy of their time and what they find to be successful, they will probably tell you some expectations that their family imposed upon them, some expectations that the culture has imposed upon them, some expectations that their career has imposed upon them. And when you dig deep enough, you realize that what they really are saying is that the only things that are valuable are the things that other people like about them. And their God is approval. Did you catch this? Did you see where the kind of determination and perseverance comes from in Paul? It comes from looking at, like we went and there was a riot. And yet he says, that wasn't a waste of time. That wasn't vanity. Where'd that come from? He had a confidence in God's power. Look at that. He says, though we had already suffered, right? He even says like, I mean, that right then and there, that ought to like kind of push against your view of what a valuable person worth following ought to be, right? Like the minute, the minute you suffer, you're like, I think, I think we're supposed to stop this. That's kind of our implicit text right now in the world, right? If it hurts or offends you, stop. Do something different. It's evil. And what does he say here? He says, look, we were suffering. Was it because you did something wrong? No, God was doing it. We were treated shamefully. That is that we were publicly uh, slandered. We were public. Remember that they, they accused him of some things and they were like, hey, we're Roman citizens. And they're like, oh, my bad. And the, the police came and let them go. Right? They were treated badly, unjustly. And we tend to think, well, if we're being treated unjustly, something must be terribly wrong. But what does he have? He has a confidence that God is doing something. And as you know, what does he say? We had boldness in what? In our God. They declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much, in the midst of much suffering. Real determination, real perseverance, real the real ability to like withstand difficult situations comes from a bold and powerful confidence in what the theological term would be the omnipotence of God. That in the end, God is all-powerful. I want you to get this. I want you to connect the dots between what you believe about God and how it affects you. Paul looked at what he had done. Paul looked at the way that he'd been rejected, the way that it didn't go, the way that most people would have liked for it to go. And he, what did he say? How did he describe it? He said he was not in vain. This will mess you up, man. This will, this, like, this, will, this will shape everything you believe about what you do. In the end, if you really trust, if you really trust that God is in control and that God is doing something, you will realize that he has the power to work all things together for good. From the beginning of the story, whether it's Joseph who was cast out and says at the very end, and he says, he says to the people who had betrayed him, look, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. Right? This is like a, pre, it's a precursor to the gospel. Do you hear it? 
What you meant for evil, God meant for good. All the way up to where the God, God it never gives up on his people to the point where the worst possible day in all of history, the worst possible day where the most perfect and righteous and sinless person was betrayed by the people he should have been able to trust. He was turned over and publicly humiliated, shamed, naked, and killed as an example of what not to do. What do we call that day? Good Friday. Good Friday. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if you were shamed, abandoned, betrayed, and turned over, and persecuted, and killed publicly, and made it a laughing stock of, there's, I don't know anyone who would think that's good. We would probably say the opposite of what Paul says. That was a waste of time. But friend, trust the power of God. God works, Romans 8 tells us, all things together for good. All of them. Even the awful things? Yes! That's the point of the cross. The symbol of our movement, the cross, is that the worst possible thing will not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. It won't stop him. And he will take what is usually shameful in the world and he will use it to shame the world. So friend, when, this, when you start to get this, when you start to realize that God's working in everything, you stop seeing anything as a waste of time. And you begin to realize that there, there really isn't a waste of time. And he has a bold confidence, a determination to speak what is true because he knows that God is doing something. And even though it may hurt, it isn't a waste of time. This will mess up your life. This will change everything if you begin to believe this. The reason you procrastinate is because of a deeply held conviction. You do not really believe that God is going to work all things together for good. And you, deep down, believe that they don't deserve your best effort because you think it's a waste of your time. It doesn't serve your purposes for your glory, and so therefore you don't put any effort into it. Take inventory. Begin to ask yourself these kinds of questions. Where is the place that you are doing just enough to get by? And where is the place that is getting your very best efforts? Where's the place where you're just barely hanging? You're just like, I'm going to get I'm just enough not to get fired. Just enough, just enough for her or him not to leave me. Just enough to, for me to stay in this. Where's the places where you have the lowest possible bar and you're trying to get away with as much as possible? And then take inventory. Where's the place that gets your best effort? And here's what you'll find. This is what's funny. Lazy people are incredibly committed to their laziness. They will sacrifice grateful, like greatly. I don't know if you, I see this in education. Like I remember as a student watching people like, like I'm talking like showing gene, like wicked evil genius to cheat on the test. And if they put, this is what I would share with them, like if you'd put half as much effort as you put into cheating and like figuring out scamming the test into actually just listening and learning the material, you'd get better grades than everybody. Have you seen this? They're like, like, elaborate schemes to scam, right? The laziest people have complex, complicated, elaborate schemes to get away with doing nothing, right? So here's what I do is I show up here, and then I look like I'm working for 10 minutes, right? And it's, like it's, de it's, like it's detailed, and they're sacrificial about their laziness. They'll kick out all the people in their life that would call them to something better, and they will sacrifice them, the community. They will, they will, they will take loneliness over actually stepping outside of their comfort zone. And you know what it means? They just don't believe that there's actually a purpose. There's a deeply held conviction. Deeply held. They would never say it. You would never put it into words. But deep down inside, you're saying, I'm God. My comfort's more important than anything else. 
my being comfort is m comfortable is more important than, than finishing any tasks. So here's what I think you should do. Don't miss the good news. Don't miss the good news. God uses worthless things to make something beautiful. To shame the wisdom of the wise, he took something that was not and made it into something that now is. And he took the things that people think are and he made them into nothing. You want to expose this in your life? Start being honest. Next time you're late. Next time you're late. Instead of coming in with some silly excuse or some sort of like, I don't know, elaborate story, how about you come in and actually just reveal your convictions? Hey guys, whoever it is, whoever you're, whoever you're accountable to, your boss, your friends, whatever, maybe it's, even, maybe it's like a vo even in a volunteer position, like, hey guys, I'm late, and you know why? I think this is a waste of my time. Say it. If you don't think I'm right, you, you, you push, you try it. Say, guys, I, I was late because I don't really think this is worthy of my best efforts. Just want you guys to know it. I procrastinated, I put off coming here because I don't really want to be here because I think that I have better things to do. I just see what happens. Just see what happens. Hey, I procrastinated on this because I think I'm God. Someone else should have done it for me. I don't think I should have to do hard things. I should only have to do easy things because I'm God. Begin to profess your deeply held convictions and you'll see what happens. Don't miss the good news. So like when you come and you just be like, I stink at my job, I'm lazy, or I'm not doing things well. And you'll be like, well, well, what do I do to fix it? And, and here's where you want me to say, try harder, do better. And I want to push back. You're bad at your job. You're lazy, you're a procrastinator, not because of something you're doing, but because of something you are believing. And do you know what you ought to do to be less lazy and be less like a procrastinator, more productive and fruitful? Repent. Repent. Hear the good news, friend. Our God takes great joy in taking things that are worthless, things that are worth nothing, and making something beautiful out of them. Our God loves taking bad investments and making them into treasures. Oh, don't miss the good news in your life. This, if this, this starts to, to mess with you, it'll change the way you have determination and perseverance. It'll mess up the way that you view even the things that you think are worthless. Our God in perfect creator of the universe, looked at you. He looked at you. You, the sinful, rebellious person that you are. And then he looked at his perfect son. And he looked back at you, and, and he saw how lazy and, and how incompetent you and I are. And, and he saw that, and then he looked again at his perfect son. And when he had the choice between the two, you and me, the terrible investment, the utter waste of time, the vain existence in the world, you know what he did? He says he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Oh, don't miss this. Our God loves taking things that look worthless and making them into something beautiful. When you start to believe that, you will begin, you'll begin to realize there is no such thing as a worthless task. There are no meaningless things. There are no vain things. Well, but I'm unpopular. They're not going to like it. Still, God uses that. That's what he used in Philippi. It's what he used in this church. And when you begin to realize that God values those things and brings them from nothing into something, it will mess you up. You'll realize there's no worthless things. There are no worthless things. Instead, all there are is an infinite amount of opportunities that God wants to use as appointments for his glory. All of them. And then maybe then, maybe. Maybe. Once that starts to shape you, you ready? 
when you start to believe that, maybe then you're ready to be entrusted with a really great job. Right now you hate your job. Jesus says until you learn how to be faithful in the small things that seem like a waste of time, he'll never entrust you with anything great. And if you're going to be disobedient with a little, he won't give you a lot. And until you begin to realize that there are no small things, God will never entrust you to do something great. Hear what Paul says. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. That thing that you don't want to do, consider the possibility that God's going to use it for something glorious. You see, persistence flows from a deep conviction that God is powerful enough to use every single little thing for his glory. When you really believe that God can use anything, don't miss this. When you believe that God can take the worst day and we get to call it the best Friday ever, you, you start to get it. When you, when you begin to see the story of Joseph and, and the people who betrayed him and you start to realize, oh, God can use that for something beautiful, you start to see your job and your coworkers a bit different, right? Real perseverance, real determination comes from a confidence in God's power, a confidence that God uses all things together for glory. Second thing we see is we see integrity. First thing is determination comes from a, a belief and this boldness, this confidence comes from believing that God is doing something. But then the next thing he points to in verse three is integrity. That is a commitment to God's truth. Let's read verse three. It says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. Now he was likely being accused of something like being a liar or a hypocrite. But, what we find out here is that he makes a defense like, look, I was just speaking the truth. I was just looking. It says from, from error or impunity, or excuse me, impurity. These words are interesting. The word error is the word plane, where we get our word planet, and it means wandering, right? Literally, we use it in terms of planet as an orbiter. What is a planet but something that orbits, right? This is where we kind of get this phrase, beat around the bush. Have you heard this? They're beating around the bush. They're just wandering around. They're not actually saying what's true, right? This is the exact same thing. We find what happened here is that Paul didn't come and like beat around the bush of who Jesus was. He said, guys, I know this is going to hurt, but Jesus is king. Caesar is not. Started a riot, but this commitment to God's truth allowed for actual integrity. We talked about this a little bit last week, this word integrity, this picture that you're the same person regardless of the circumstances. You're not disintegrated, but you're the same this picture of real integrity comes from a commitment to truth. You introduce me to a person who will waver on what's true and morally right and morally good and, what's, and they'll waver on what's morally bad or morally reprehensible. They'll waver on that. I will, I will, if you introduce me to that person, I'll introduce you to an untrustworthy person. Do not trust that person. That person has no convictions about what's right all the time. Well, in this case, it's kind of, well, we have to weigh the interests of these. Good luck. Good luck. A person without any of those moral convictions, without a commitment to what's true, regardless of the circumstance, that person is an untrustworthy person. Certainly not fit for any leadership among people who want to love Jesus, who look at Jesus and we say, what's true? Jesus. What's the way? Jesus. What's life meant to be like? Look at Jesus. We believe that truth personified is Jesus. You introduce me to a person who will waver on that, and I will introduce you to a person who's about a few steps away from tripping and falling and crushing everyone else's life around them. Because they don't know. They'll sell you out. And whenever, whenever it becomes like advantageous for them, they'll sell you down the river. They absolutely will. 
And so he's saying, like, what we were, de- what we were declaring was true. It, it wasn't from error. It wasn't from impurity. This probably would have meant something even, even implied that there are other people, like, the, like we saw in Corinth, who were, who were like using what they knew to be true, and they were saying things about God just to get rich. Or, as we saw in Corinth, they were saying things about what they believed about God, namely Aphrodite, for sexual favors. And he's saying, this isn't, we don't have impure motives here. If you dig deep enough into a person with impure motives and no clear view of truth, one of two things is probably happening. They're after you either for, for some sort of sexual favor or they're after you for money. Every single time, from, from the Old Testament to now today. And he says, we weren't trying to deceive you. We reject all untruth. You want to have integrity? Don't have a stomach for untruth. Don't be wavering on what you really believe. We talk about this on a regular basis. The greatest deceptions and lies that are told amongst us are the kinds of deceptions we tell ourselves. We see it in shallow ways. You see this? No offense, but... And in that moment, you tell yourself a lie. You deceive yourself, and you're like... What I'm about to say is not going to be offensive. Why? Because I told myself no offense. I just said no offense. I'm not one to complain, but man, nobody in their dog thinks that's true about you. You're the only one who thinks that's true. I bet you complain all the time. I wasn't going to say anything, but no, you absolutely were going to say something. And these little lies are all around us. Here's what I think. If we're going to have real integrity, we, we reject those things. We speak truth. We speak truth in love, and it changes who we are. Here's one. I've, I see this on a regular basis. This is the thing. This is, I'm not going to make eye contact with anyone. This is a real thing. If you ask somebody a question, they answer. They start the sentence with these two words. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Uh, you heard this? Is it silent because you've never heard it or because you always say it? That's what I want to know right now. Have you heard this? Like, hey, yeah, what do you think about this thing? Yeah, no, I think we're going to do this. Wait, wait, time out. Those two words can't be true side by side. That's not a thing. Do you see it? Do you see how our culture works? Like, if you're the person who just goes, yes, or no, or instead of saying no offense, say, look, I'm going to say something that's difficult. Instead of saying, I'm not one to complain, be honest and say, you know what? I have a propensity to complain. You'd start standing out in a crowd, wouldn't you? You'd look pretty strange in our culture. That's what we call integrity, a commitment to truth, an unwavering commitment to truth. The third thing you see here is a right view of authority. This word scares people. Old Testament seems to make it clear that authority is not an evil thing, but we can all think of lots of ways in which authority has been used to destroy things. But he grounds his authority, I don't know if you caught that, in being accepted and approved by God and then entrusted with his mission. His authority was a borrowed authority. It was a derived authority. He had no authority intrinsically, but he had an authority that had been given to him. So so verse 3, we saw there's an appeal that's that's from a pure place. But verse 4, it says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so now we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. You want to have a right view of authority? Understand yourself as one who is under authority. The people who have authority and leadership in the life of our church and the life of the New Testament church are the ones who have the highest view of the authority that is over them. Friend, I, I want you to know this. There's only one guy in this church. There's only one guy who gets everything he wants. There's only one person who gets everything he wants in this church, and his name is Jesus. It's not me. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor. The rest of us are underlings that point towards him. 
And the authority that you and I have is only an authority derived by the, by the way that we hold this. Right? You see this, you know this. If I said, thou shalt not kill, right? You would be like, well, I have to obey Jonathan. But you kind of know that didn't come from me, right? Especially since I used King James language. And there's a sense in which you're like, thou shalt not kill. I better do what he says. But you actually know like, well, he doesn't really have the, the, the right to say what I should and shouldn't do. But he's quoting a God who does. This is a view of authority. It's derived. Friend, beware of anyone who has authority but does not see themselves as being under authority. This is a big deal for us. Let me be extremely, unapologetically political about this one. This is what bothers me about our current president. If you want to disagree with me, come talk to me afterward. Tell me the authority he submits to. But I, I currently think he does whatever he wants. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't uphold like the meaning of words or the truthfulness of how you use them, okay? So I'm not trying to slander. I have no desire to slander the man. I'm trying to show you this is what our culture currently thinks about authority. We voted for that guy. I want a guy who doesn't think anybody's about who, you know, I wonder, he's going to wreck shop. He's going to do whatever he wants. Okay, good. You get what you vote for on that one. But just, friends, beware. That's not the church. And here's a place that I point out. I, po- I point out a political sphere in which Christians can start to look radically different, right? Like we see ourselves as those under authority. We appeal to a higher and better moral authority. That's, that's the only authority we have. We have no right to tell anyone anything except what we believe points towards Christ. And when you know that your authority is grounded in what God has done for you in Jesus, did you catch that? I'm accepted by God. So now that I'm accepted, I have no, I have no better option than to go and share the gospel. He's entrusted me with this mission. And pleasing God becomes kind of easy when you realize his approval has already been freely given to you in Jesus. Pleasing God is always hard when you think that there's an unfinished work, something you have to do. But under God's authority, the authority that he uses to show grace and not to destroy, to lift up the humble and to oppose the proud, we have something new. Never follow a leader who's not being led. Never trust someone with authority that isn't also under authority. And if you have to, if you have to be under that authority, then make sure you don't undermine the authority you and I ultimately submit to. Next thing we see here is a picture of accountability in the last half of that verse. Verse 4, we've been approved, we've been entrusted. So God's given us a mission. Our authority is grounded in what God does, not in ourselves. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The last thing is, or the fourth thing we see is a picture of accountability. A picture of an accountability. Where does that sense of accountability come, right? Of knowing that you have to give an account. In the most literal sense, you have to give an account for what you have. It's compelled by God's complete knowledge, or we would call his omniscience. And because we know that God knows everything, did you catch that? That we've been approved, we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. How, how, how would that be a good investment? I'll tell you how. Because he tests your heart. Uh, you can trick other people, even in this room, about your motives. You can trick them and deceive them. Here's the thing that, that, that like, is the leveling of the playing field for us. You cannot trick God. His omniscience, that we believe that he knows all things. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, again, not trying to impress people or deceive people, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. And what does he appeal to again for as a sense of accountability? God is the witness. This is another thing, man, this will mess you up. 
When you realize that you live in a place that's fully laid bare by God, it changes the way you interact with the truth of other people. You show me a person who hides what's true about themselves from other people, you show me, then I'll show you a person that doesn't believe that God really knows and sees everything. But the omniscience of God frees us up to truth, right? Remember, we're the people. Jesus says, look, the truth is going to do what? You're going to know it, and it's going to set you free, even hard truth. And we become radically loyal to the truth. It gives us a sense of accountability that's worth trusting in the life of the church. Last thing. Humility. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is a witness. Listen to this phrase. This is powerful. Nor did we seek glory from people. Nor did we seek glory from people. You see, humility comes from being consumed and committed to God's glory above all things. If in the end you want glory for yourself, you will use others to get it. And some of you are doing it right now. You're only here because you want to look a certain way. Maybe you want to fit into a group. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what your motives are, but if it's not for the glory of Christ, then you are currently seeing the people around you as commodities that you will buy, sell, trade, or, or steal, for that matter, for your own glory. What a powerful phrase, isn't it? Real humility comes from realizing that God's the one who deserves the glory. God's the one who deserves the glory. Do you get it now? How you live your life will be driven by what you really believe. And if you want to see some of these things happen, they will be in this order. You'll start having real determination and tenacity because you really trust totally in the power of God. You might start seeing real integrity because you're fully committed to the truth of God. You might finally experience like a godly and helpful authority. Why? Because you finally know that you have on your life the commission of God Almighty. You'll have real accountability because the knowledge of God. He knows everything. You can't hide, and then you'll have real humility. Not because you think you're less than other people, because you know that ultimately God will get the glory with or without you. Friend, this is what we pray for. This is what we want to see. In Paul defending his leadership here, he lays out a beautiful picture for what people who have influence in this room, in our church, and in the church of Jesus around the world ought to look like. So here's what I'll say. Just join me in praying for it. Join me in asking God from this. Apart from these, and again, it's not the thing. Don't, don't miss that. It's not the behavior. It's the belief that fuels the behavior. And if you're missing one of these things, and if you would honestly ask the people around you, your spouse, your friends, and, or your coworkers, and they would say, hey, I don't see this in you, resist the temptation to apologize for the behavior and run to Jesus and repent of the belief. Resist the temptation to say, I'll fix it, I'll do better. Run to Jesus and confess your inability to do anything apart from him. Because apart from God doing these things in us, we will never see the things that we saw blow up in Thessalonica. Apart from these things working out in us, apart from this, making disciples will never actually be a part of our church. We'll just try to draw a crowd and look cool. Apart from this, raising up faithful and biblically qualified elders will never happen. Because we'll just raise up people who are posers and who are really good at hiding their sin. Apart from this, there will be no faithful preaching of God's word. There will always be a fear. We're like, what are they going to say? They really believe that? Yeah. 
here's what I hope, in the next few generations, enough to get beat and thrown in prison for. Apart from this, our worship, the songs we sing, will always be just an exaltation of our culture rather than an exaltation of Christ. Apart from this, adults will never disciple teenagers, and teenagers will never disciple children. They will all assume that someone else's responsibility to set a good example. Apart from this, we will never be distinct from the world. Apart from this, you will never take the gospel boldly where, the God, where God has placed you. Friend, let's see what Christ has done for us. Let's place our confidence in his finished work. And then let's see what happens after that. Let's see what kind of people are shaped by believing deeply that an all-powerful God has used his power not to destroy and oppress, but to redeem and restore. Let's see what happens when a group of people get together and really believe that God takes something that was not and makes it into something beautiful. Let's be the people who believe that the worst day in earth is a good Friday for us. And knowing that what he has done for us and accomplished for us shapes every single detail of our lives and shapes the kind of influence he's entrusted to us. Let's pray together. God, we confess that the gauntlet that Paul lays out here for his own leadership and then models for this church in Thessalonica, we confess this is beyond us. We have no ability in and of ourselves to achieve these things. We confess that if we were really honest, we lack the integrity. We, we have a skewed and corrupt and perverted view of authority. We resist accountability. We push back against all of these things that, that Paul leads us in here. Would you begin to stir in us a holy and powerful humility of knowing that you, God, have set a mission you have set a gauntlet in front of us, but ultimately Jesus has walked that gauntlet and accomplished it for us. We're simply following behind him. If there's some in this room, maybe they've never believed this. This hasn't changed them. Would you begin now to like, well, God, disturb them? Uh, begin to rattle them. Begin to show them that this, this thing that Jesus calls, calls us to do is a great cost. It's of great, great cost. What costs us everything? If we're not willing to lose our family, lose our lives, and carry our own cross, we can't have any part of it. Would you begin to stir us for this? If someone in this room, maybe they've never believed this, would you begin to plant in them the seed of faith? And they would see, this is what God is doing. I want that. I want to be a part of this. I want to trust in Christ completely. Maybe for those of us in this room, our eyes have been open to the gospel, but we're currently hiding one of these things. We're hiding the lack of truthfulness. We're hiding. We're deceptive. We're, we're manipulators. We really care about other people's approval more than anything else. Would you begin to show us there is no greater approval shown to us than what you've done for us in Jesus. There is no greater mission than the one that you've been accomplishing from the beginning of time and finished fully in Jesus. Allow us to now be a part of it. There is no greater truth than the one that sets us free in Jesus. Allow us to be shaped by that. Make us a radical counterculture in our city as a result. We love you for this and trust that you will do the work here that we cannot. And it's in your name and for your glory that we pray these things. Amen.